trigger warning, this episode may contain references to Scottish culture that some listeners may find obscure. <laughs> <laughs> Hey folks, welcome to the Unsung Podcast. I am your host Mark Fraser and I'm joined by my co-host Mr. The Usual, <laughs> Mr. Christopher Cusack. Fresh as a fucking daisy. This is absolutely our first run through. We did not have recording problems first time we did this. Uh, and welcome to the stage yet again, Victoria Jane Henry. So happy to be here guys for the first time tonight. <laughs> <laughs> so happy to still be here guys. <laughs> But this week, Vicky isn't even the most special guest on the podcast. Someone has out-specialed even Vicky, and it's mainly because he's really fucking far away. It is Craig Carrick. Craig Carrick, hello. G'day. All the way from <laughs> uh, Dune Under. Not just Dune Under, but fucking Castle, Main. Uh, I can see the pub from here. Oh, I can see the pub from here, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Wait, I believe you can actually see the brewery from there. Is that yeah, it? yeah. The the original Casamain Four X Brewery is just around the corner from here. It's uh, it's an antique shop now. But I think they uh, they, oh, wow. they moved uh, the brewing of the beer to Sydney or something about a hundred years ago. But the original building is still there, and it's uh, it's a nice bit. You can buy mad old gas pumps and all things like that there. <laughs> That that that's the kind of steampunk paraphernalia we all associate with the uh, outback. <laughs> and uh, speaking of uh, Madonna, we are uh, our, our good pal, our, our best pal Dave. He is uh, currently <laughs> fighting alligators <laughs> in Florida. So, I mean, what the fuck can we do? I'm about glad that? you got your alligators and crocodiles right there. Can't, can't that's, do good. that's the kind of research that you're paying for with your two pound a month donations. You bunch of tight <laughs> bastards. Speaking of two pound a month donations, Chris, <laughs> fucking hell, seamless. <laughs> Seamless. If you enjoy this pish, you can you can go to uh, our Patreon and give us some money for this pish. It's uh, patreon.com forward slash unsungpod. We've got a lot of really cool things you can get. You can get a, a personal anthem, which Craig has had one of, of course. A belter, no less. A belter, no less. A personalised playlist, which people have had, and also personalised t-shirts of albums they love with our very pretty faces just emblazoned on them. I mean, those are some... Excellent limited edition shirts, especially seen as Dave's face has not been seen by any human being for about two months. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a complete unknown. What's happened to him? Who knows? I think we'll really find out about it. some congratulations are in order for him. Yeah, David yeah. got himself married. Or got rather, himself married. Or rather, a, a little lady got herself married to David. <laughs> yeah. Congratulations, guys. He wore a very fetching salmon, salmon coloured suit, which, you know, I actually really liked. I thought it was really nice. He's probably the only other guy I know who likes pink as much as I do. But it's pink. (laughs) This episode's not really a um, 
great episode for marriage, so maybe don't get listen to this one, guys. Aye, actually, yeah. Pivot, yeah, let's well, pivot. If you do more than eight months, you're doing well. So, um, yep, yeah, as Vicky says, this episode is not a great episode for marriage. This is just a great episode, though, um, and we've not even recorded it yet. We've Never. Only, we've only Never. recorded it once before. <laughs> Never. Did and, and, and And not even all of us recorded it once before. <laughs> um, but... I mean, this honestly has to be one of the most interesting subjects we've done full stop. And it's the most interesting life story and personality we've done since, I think, Eric Satie. And probably there's not many others to rival it, at least in our back catalogue. This was Definitely. a fucking brilliant choice brilliant, in terms choice, of Craig. the amount of fascinating research that went on. So, Craig... Uh, without any further ado, will you tell the audience the name of the artist and the album that we're about to cover? Certainly. Um, yeah, we're going to talk about um, an American R&B artist called Millie Jackson. And we're going to talk about uh, her 1974 concept album, Caught Up. It is a kind of a strange choice for this. Um, it is when thinking about the concept of unsung and and thinking about this might not be her unsung album. In fact, it definitely isn't. But this, as an artist, is pretty much unsung, as was demonstrated with with you guys of not having heard of her before as well. Total blind spot, like completely. Yeah, and it's and I guess we'll get into like why that might be and and how how that is for other people as well. Uh, I first came across her. Uh, via a pretty kind of unexpected link, um, everyone's favourite model railway enthusiast, uh, Rod Stewart. Mm-hmm. So I was doing a, <laughs> I was doing a bit of a deep dive on the band uh, Faces after they did this uh, triple album. I think it was nineteen seventy to seventy five. Uh, they were a band that were kind of a super group of the Small Faces and the Jeff Beck group had Ronnie Wood in it and Rod Stewart. Uh, I really love them. And, and I think there was a, a B-side or rarity on that album where they were covering the song, uh, If Loving You Is Wrong, I Don't Want to Be Right. And that led to me kind of digging out the Rod Stewart version of that song, which he did in uh, 1977 on the Footloose and Fancy Free album, which is also excellent. Um, I was really keen on the song and one night I was around at someone else's house and I was putting it on uh, their laptop and I was just searching on YouTube uh, for the song name of Loving You Is Wrong and the Millie Jackson version came up and I hadn't heard of it, didn't think much of it so I checked that out, fell in love with it straight away and then I went down a bit of a rabbit hole as you do online with Millie Jackson I think the next tune was uh, the Fuck You Symphony which we'll get to and uh, I was immediately just intrigued and, and really blown away so uh, Millie Jackson became kind of my next deep dive artist and I was just so surprised I'd never heard of her before because she's so good. Um, so from then on through the years, it's always been a bit of a go-to for introducing people to some some new stuff. It's, you know, get down music and I love her 
um, our stuff, our live stuff. It's uh, both on album and via uh, many, many film concerts that you can watch on YouTube. She sings like uh, like Gladys Knight meets Tina Turner. She commands a band like James Brown, and she talks to the audience almost like a stand-up, like Richard Pryor would or something. These comparisons are kind of useful in a situation like this where most people haven't heard of her before. But um, Millie Jackson, um, in my eyes anyway, is is pretty incomparable. Uh, She's a total one-off, even to this day. She's pushing 80 years old. She's still with us, still laughing. And the important thing to remember when we're talking about all the stuff she did and and her career and her music, this was all done in the the 70s. And it was a, a very different time across the board. With, uh, with civil rights, women's rights, and probably just human rights in general. Um, just such an interesting character, such an interesting artist. She's self-managed, self-trained. She's pretty much done whatever she's wanted over a pretty massive career. I think she's got over 30 albums. Um, there's a, lots of lore around her about her getting her first break and all the rest of it, things that we'll talk about through the episode. And... Yeah, now that we're all now we're all caught up, we should uh, <laughs> we should get into it. Yeah, as you, as you say, loads and loads of material uh, across a long career. Uh, Thirty one albums, I think it is. Um, Sixty one singles, I think. Uh, her most recent single, uh, "Black Bitch Crazy," will make a, a lot more sense once we go into a little bit uh, of mm. the personality and the um, and persona. I think that Millie Jackson is on stage. I don't know how much of it is intrinsically her and how much of it is just um, part of this amazing performance thing that she does, uh, which does, as as Craig says, straddles terrific, brilliantly written R&B and soul and little hints of Motown and funk and bits of rap and hip-hop and stuff as well, Uh, but also like a a sort of stand-up comedy I mean, she's got. I think she's been sampled 189 times. Uh, last count that I saw on, online, uh, there are 51 kind of high-profile covers of her stuff that I'm aware of. At least six kind of big remix projects. Uh, she's got titles like the, the Queen of Raunchy Soul, uh, the Godmother of Hip Hop, or the Godmother of Rapping. We'll we'll talk a wee bit about where where that title comes from. There's a hell of a lot to talk about professionally, uh, but we'll we'll do a little bit of due diligence in terms of personally on the woman first to give you a bit of background. Uh, she was born in 1944 in Georgia in the USA. Uh, I'm afraid one of the first details that is relevant in her life is that her mother died. She was horrifically burned to death when Millie Jackson was two years old in an accident. Uh, something to do with confusing kerosene and petrol or something like that. She threw it on a fire. Try to light a fire it using the dreadful. wrong thing. It exploded. It, it killed her. Um, her father then raised her for most of her life. I think he's married six times in total. Um, but by his fourth divorce, the way she tells it is that he saw her in high heels, realised he was now raising a young woman. And that he felt like he wasn't cut out for that. Uh, and she went and spent, I think she says, 13 months thereabouts with her grandparents, who were, by her own account, oh, like, sort of like conservative to the point of being slightly backwards. There's like a, a story about, you know, her eating salt to prevent getting pregnant. Um, was was her mm. grandfather a, a preacher? A preacher, yeah. Yeah, yeah mm. so sort of kind of minister mm. or something like that. Um, and she left home when she was like 15 or something like that. Yeah. Went, um, to, went to New York. 
in interviews yeah. and stuff, she's she's talked about how she doesn't really resent her father. Her father wasn't just a you know top shagger, just like going out there <laughs> and marrying multiple multiple mm-hmm. women kind of thing. It's uh, she's kind of resigned to the fact that he was trying to find her a mother. Mm-hmm. Which, so he, yeah, she says he he had a lot of redeeming features as a, as a man. He doesn't. He doesn't come in for a massive amount of criticism. I think she did say he maybe wasn't the most enlightened of guys, but she realised at a later age that he was trying to replace her mum to, to give her some sort of structure and then realised he couldn't do that. Um, as as a youngster, she was for a long time quite awkward. I mean, there's a great quote um, about her sense of feeling quite asexual and unattractive uh, because uh, she describes it as her clothes hit her in two places, her left and right shoulder, as in they just hung off her. Um, she also had kind of ready auburn hair, which is obviously very unusual for an African American, and she was teased a lot for that uh, when she was younger. So when she began to develop, when she hit puberty, when she sort of began to become more confident her own sexuality and, and womanhood she she really embraced that and it, it becomes a really big feature of her career her, her very strong sense of sexuality and you know things like she became very proud of for example having a great set of legs and she went into modeling and became really confident about that aspect of, of her physique she has two children she has uh, a daughter called Keisha Jackson, who uh, is a singer uh, and a backup singer, yep. and mm-hmm. st- still is. Maybe. You'd recognise yeah. her if you saw her. Probably. The daughter yeah. Erica Badu and stuff like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a, a son called Gerald Levert Jackson. Um, a, she said in an interview about how her daughter was an accident. Doesn't seem to be a big issue between them. Um, I, th- I believe they're quite close. Uh, there is a fantastic documentary online, which just so happens to be called Unsung, about. Millie Jackson, you can I think you can catch it on YouTube um, quite easily, and it's just so engaging. But you know, her daughter's on that quite prominently, and it seems like they have a good relationship. She was married only once to a guy called Victor Davis, who was actually the bassist in her band at the time. Uh, marriage only lasted eight months. Um, I mean, she's commented on that quite quite a bit. Um, one of the quotes was. He thought we were going to be the next Ike and Tina Turner. He thought he was going to tell me what to do with my life. And I decided that was not going to happen. Case closed. And another comment later on was, I like being able to go shopping for myself. I go to the supermarket and nobody bothers me. I don't have a bodyguard. I like that. I think I live a very decent life. I'm a long way from starving and I'm still me. And that was kind of her referring to the fact raising a family as a single mother hadn't had a detrimental effect mm-hmm. on either her relationship with her children or her sense of self or her sense of control of her own life. Like quite the opposite. Um, also, if you watch that documentary, I just have to throw this in because one of the standout details for me and something that I love was that from a very early point when she had a bit of money, she had a basement full of arcade machines. So, you know, Pac-Man... Still does, yeah. Yeah, it still does. Pac-Man, Asteroid, <laughs> she had a pool table, she had pinball machines. She's she's laughed about uh, how she's uh, compensating for the childhood she feels she missed. Um, there are so many endearing things about this woman. When, when you watch the Unsung documentary, but also there's, there's a really uh, an interview that we'll make a lot of reference to here, I think, because we've all seen it, I know that, uh, with... Granada or Channel 4 it's a British production with a very conservative prim English uh, interviewer from I don't know the late 70s late 70s I think it's probably the 80s maybe early 80s 84 um, it was, and yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, and Millie Jackson is so gracious in it because there's so many points in that interview when you watch it that you think she could have taken umbrage to that. She would, she would have been quite entitled to take exception to that, but she tries her best to stay very. I don't think the interviewer's trying to disrespect her, but some no. of the things are just it's such a clash of different personalities that it seems quite jarring, I think. Like when I watched that interview, I kind of thought at the beginning that the interview viewer was genuinely quite excited to be interviewing her because because she's such a formidable personality and interesting and different but some of her questions are like just a, a bit disrespectful or something like that Absolutely. right yeah. and but you like she does handle it with like complete grace yeah. i totally now you, you made reference to the the bits of lore about her early career millie jackson had no formal training um completely self self-taught her first introduction to the world as singing properly came at an open mic event at the Sam's Cafe. Sam's as in like biblical Sam's. And I believe she was overheard criticising a, a singer on stage at the time. Uh, and the person who overheard her said to her, oh, well, I suppose you could do better. Uh, well, I bet you $5 you can't go up there and, and do as good a job. And so she was like, yeah, I'll take that bet. And she went up on stage and... Smashed it. Smashed. Won the $5. <laughs> Won the $5, smashed it. And uh, supposedly there was a, a promoter in the audience who invited her to go and perform shortly after. And her career kind of started to take off from then. Um, not awfully long after, she ended up on tour with Elsie uh, Cook, who's the, the brother of Sam Cook. Mm-hmm. You know, Cupid and Wonderful World and a lot of... I think I've heard DMI. Yeah, yeah, he's, 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 he's got around... <laughs> There's a few things about Millie Jackson that will become really, really important when you're discussing her. One of them is the fact that she is banter fucking central. Or uh, can, we, can we say patter central? Because I feel like banter's a bit anglified. I, th- no, I think patter's even, even, even more Scottish. No, patter's, patter's, yeah, patter's more Scottish. English language. No, mm. patter's English language. Patter's a hang. I think like, yeah, they say glo- in America. Say chat, you know. She's a, a chat pa- No, I think patter <laughs> is an English... Uh, be warned, global audience, this could be a, a bone of Scottish cultural contention. Please here. leave us a comment so, whether you prefer sorry, banter She is undeniably a patter merchant. Uh. <laughs> so, uh, this is actually an interesting thing uh, because, to, to reference another uh, Scottish legend, Billy Conley, um, who originally started as a musician and became ultimately a stand up comedian because his his little his yeah exactly <laughs> his little uh, departures during his live musical set were really designed to sort of keep the the crowds engaged because when you're playing to a pub audience um or a club audience a working man's club audience it's easy for them to get distracted and mm-hmm. chat and get drunk especially as the night goes on and he wanted to keep them you know paying attention to the act that was going on and and Millie Jackson sort of did a similar thing she's described how that initial those initial forays into jokes and humor and observational stuff yeah. and addressing them was designed to keep those heads turned facing her because she hated performing to, to the side or the back but of her head. I bet she wasn't even that self-aware of it like she would have been doing it because that would have been naturally her like Billy Conley would have been doing it because it was naturally him there's a, just a pragmatism there isn't there of keeping people engaged. She has said that like she talked to the audience because she was nervous it reminds me of Rudy Moore, right? The Dolomite guy. Yeah, the whole Dolomite yeah because although like it was fictional for him because he's a comedian it's the same kind of like sexually explicit idea of projecting this you know reality 
of in his case a kind of reality or a, 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 a character, a, yeah, a yeah. fictional reality of of working class black life. Whereas for Millie Jackson, it's more I don't know. Similarity real. there is that both of them had a live band behind them, and they were yeah know, going for that that aspect of it. Yeah, there's another similarity, which is that they were both really heavily influenced by Richard Pryor. The, the career turn of Richard Pryor to the darker humour, the more challenging humour, the, the coarser, frankly, more obscene humour. That, that, you know, I think it was just about a month after his mum died, he made a, a decision in his career to really go down some much more confrontational paths. And actually, in doing so... He just blew open the gates for a, 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 a whole, not just one generation of comedians. I mean, look at how many people are still to this day hugely influenced by Richard Pryor. And I don't think it was just in comedy. It, it bled into these other things. Millie Jackson's a great example of that. Aye, and you can see her influence on people like Jenny Eclair and things like mm-hmm. that, like in the kind of um, sketches that they would do about sex and it being like a wee bit crass and nitty gritty. Or whatever, <laughs> like Jenny Eclair does this sketch about wiping her bum from back to front, and her her man looking like he's been eating a chocolate ice cream after he's went down, <laughs> which is straight out of the book of Millie Jackson. Do you know what I mean? The thing that was dropping in that great similarity between Billy Connolly as well is that although Billy Connolly is a professional comedian and a stand-up kind of thing, and Millie Jackson isn't, but they've both got that same element to them where they're up there just telling a story rather than telling a joke and it's the yeah. way they say it it's the way they tell it and it's the way that they laugh at themselves that makes you laugh and both of them have these yeah. infectious laughs and you'll hear probably from some of the clips that chris will put in how infectious millie jackson's laugh is and it just makes you want to laugh even just thinking about it now and that's uh, even when she's talking about something totally like benign that's not yeah. even like a comedy <laughs> point you're still laughing because she's she is she's dead charismatic get yourself an ugly man ugly men don't get none too often It's worthwhile mentioning, I mean, the the Dolomite character is funny because it's exceptional and unusual and novel and, you know, it's got a freakish quality to it, the the outsized pimp character. I think the secret to the comedy in Millie Jackson and in Billy Connolly and comedy that would be relevant to us in Scotland, you know, things like Rabsy Nesbitt, Still Game, Limmy, they're funny because they're real and I think the novelty of seeing people like that on stage making working class observations yeah. was partly because you were like, oh my god, I can't believe in this formal setting, in this big you know, mm-hmm. arena or theatre with all this effort they're up there talking about wiping their bum or they're up there talking about <laughs> gain yeah, a gammy or it's like uh, you know, kitchen sink stuff giving a gammy by the way uh, Craig you want to explain that to the um, I was just um, <coughs> I'm shocked and offended um, in the antipodes here um, oh, so somebody about, tell Craig what giving a gammy means please um, I just, uh, I'm just very pleased to be on a podcast where you've said uh, <laughs> blowjobs it blinkers to blowjobs yeah, <laughs> yeah, sorry that was a Scottish cultural reference we'll, we'll segue effortlessly from one form of oral sex into another um so millie jackson very early on and pretty much for the rest of her life (laughs) became uh known as a provocateur and somebody that loved to use profanity um and loved to really lean into sexuality to like to to 
to a quite outsized extent. Um, mm. I mean, but she, effective, right? Effectively, yeah, yeah, absolutely, and it served the purpose. But she is herself acknowledged that the primary topic of her music uh, was probably infidelity, mm-hmm. and after that, just out and out sex. And by sex, we mean not making love or any sort of uh, shagging air, airbrush <laughs> shagging, yeah, any yeah. airbrush yeah. version of it shagging like humping yeah. uh, sex imagine um, Marvin Gaye but if Marvin Gaye actually spoke about sex <laughs> that's basically what it would be not just making well, I mean, she'd probably make an aside here to say that she didn't start off that way Yeah, that was a turning point no. that put her on this traje- tra- trajectory that was her kind of her unique selling point and Absolutely. it was a very conscious so, decision for her to make yeah and, and there's like a long history in blues music of like singing about sex but it is in metaphor churning my butter or let me squeeze your <laughs> lemons or whatever do you know what I mean? like, yeah she kind of got rid of that she, that she just, just get rid of that um, but I mean as, as Craig says you know in, in the she'd actually in the very early days released like a whole bunch of like <laughs> released a seven inch come on it's, it's hard to avoid doing you uh, um Right, but uh, you know she'd released some smaller sized records on um, MGM originally, but and then signed to Spring Records in 1970. But you know, ironically, yeah, her first kind of real sort of semi-successful single was "A Child of God." Brackets, it's hard to believe. Which was quite a political thing and actually was it was banned from the radio, ironically given the rest of her career, because on the surface of it they claimed they didn't want to have the word God on the radio. Um, I, I mean, it got to number two. Uh, it's, it's widely considered that it could have been much more successful had it been given radio support. I am hugely sceptical that the reason for it not being allowed in the radio was because they didn't want her saying God, given the ubiquity of God on American radio. Yeah. It seems like there's a racial element in that. Am, am I alone in thinking that? No, I mean, I, totally. I mean, one of the lyrics she talks about, like, how a guy can go to church on a, a Sunday and then, like, be wearing a hood on a Monday, which is clearly, you know, a reference to the Ku Klux Klan, right? I also think, though, like, in the 60s and 70s, having two or three albums before you, like, had a decent album was kind of par for the course, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's much more expected that if you're going to have an album now, your first album has to hit it right on the head, do you know what I mean? Whereas people had loads of shitty albums yeah, before they yeah. made a good one. Absolutely, we've, we've made reference to that before, that famous interview with Prince's manager. First strike of the prince buzzer um, <laughs> uh, when he said there won't be another prince because you know he he was given that you know the first three albums to 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 find his his niche yeah to, to become prince yeah and the money doesn't exist in the system to allow people that amount of speculation anymore mm-hmm. but anyway yeah so that vaguely political early stuff it doesn't really marry with the kind of period that we're going to talk about but early on there was a much more sort of conventionally Motown sound to, to what she was doing um, I would say even like the Smokey Robinson vibes were pretty strong um, her mm-hmm. self-titled album came out in 1972 and it has uh, aside from A Child of God it has a track called Ask Me What You Want and it has a song called My Man A Sweet Man
all of which were reasonable hits for somebody, especially in the yeah. first album. You'll see her on like Soul Train and all that, doing things like My Man, A Sweet Man as well. Mm-hmm. And that's where yeah. they were trying to create and manufacture an artist. And all the comparisons mm-hmm. then, uh, as we've talked about comparisons like Smokey Robinson, it's um, Gladys Knight was a big one. And she's mm-hmm. she said yeah. from, from then on, I think um, one of the things you were talking about earlier was that they, they actually... Um, augmented her voice to make it faster and higher to make her sound less yeah, kind of baritone that, uh, and less like herself. Yeah, I saw that. They tried to pitch it up because they thought that was a, a more appropriate register for a woman doing that kind of music at the time. It's horrendous to me. It is, yeah, yeah. And the thing is... It's engineering, like yeah. social engineering. Or yeah, weird. well, the Gladys Knight comparisons were, were frequent, but... She, She's a it, big fan as well. She loved, she loved Gladys Knight. She is, but there was it all, they always came with like a kind of asterisk, which was mm-hmm. that you know it's like Gladys Knight, especially on the softer songs. It's like Gladys Knight if she's just been drinking brown liquor. Like there was always a husky, rougher edge to her voice mm-hmm. that Gladys mm-hmm. Knight didn't have, and then gradually that husky, rougher edge started to manifest in the music, in in other ways as well, uh, in in terms of content. The Hurt's So Good album that came out in 1973 is a big moment for her. Then you take my mind and play with it all night. You take my pride and you throw it up against the wall. You take me in your arms. The title track is something you can't ignore. There were a couple of tracks, at least maybe maybe three, that were on a soundtrack to a very kind of successful black exploitation film from '73 called Cleopatra Jones. They reprised the role in a sequel called Cleopatra Jones and the Golden Casino or something like that. But it, it was it was successful and actually quite well thought of at the time as far as the black exploitation kind of genre went. Uh, but it did give her a real platform. But it was also it had this very '70s funk feel to it, which is strange because it. it First of all, it's quite racy because of its association with that film. But it came right after a song called I Cry, which is the first track in that album. And lyrically, the vibe is so akin to the likes of Marvin Gaye. People walk past without seeing that the man was about to die. When I called for help, no one came because they didn't want to get involved. The problem seemed that no one believed the situation can be. It's much more politically and socially conscious. It's you know it's coming two years after what's going on had happened. It feels like that sort of left a mark. And elsewhere in that album, there's there's a really good track at number twelve called "Close My Eyes." which is a kind of bouncier sort of Motown thing that seems to be looking backwards towards the kind of late 60s instead of that kind of 70s funk and disco stuff. So I think it's an interesting record, not because I have a a lot of time for it, if I'm being honest, but more because you can see there are multiple personalities that she's potentially trying to choose from at that stage. And it's only with the subsequent albums that you see she makes a, a call on what she wants to do and then all of that stuff sort of fades into the rearview mirror you know the the, mm-hmm. the 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 Marvin Gaye type stuff and you know well I don't know about that not completely but, but what I would say is like she she didn't feel in control of that album um, and she says that and maybe it was that interview she says that um, 
she wasn't in control of her output at the time and since then she's become pretty much a perfectionist workaholic and controlling everything because for her the most important thing is authenticity whether it's right or wrong is neither here nor there it's about being what she wants to put out there and um, a lot of that like early stuff especially the kind of Gladys Knighty stuff although she is a big fan of Gladys Knight, wasn't her and she never ever felt comfortable with it yeah she moved labels I think after that well she at least on the back of this spent three or four albums ploughing a furrow um, again just sounds like innuendo and in given <laughs> when you've spent a week with, by the way listener listener when you've spent a week with Millie Jackson trust me everything you say will feel like innuendo um, but she she kind of plays this furrow narrative wise where she she does the album that we're going to cover um caught up and then she does still caught up which is effectively the sort of same character the mistress other woman character and then that continues for another a couple albums after that it seems like she does make a kind of pointed decision to like how am i going to find myself how am i going to go in a direction that feels authentically me well Uh, well yeah we have a dissenting voice no no we don't i'm just um so when when the record label heard the song it hurts so good that's when the label owners like realised that they were seeing the real Millie Jackson and gave her the licence to go and win yeah. the next four records which she does about, uh, I guess, the milieu, right, of, of Millie Jackson. Yeah, well, I mean, it, certainly that track was the track where they stopped trying to pitch shift their voice. And yeah. stuff. They were like, OK, let her be who she wants to be. It's a controversial song as well, I think, because of the, the subtexts to it. You know, it hurts so good. It hasn't fared well viewed through a modern lens because it it walks a fine line between hinting at sort of rough sex that she enjoys which does feel more authentically you know in keeping with her character and also enjoying the kick of a dysfunctional abusive relationship um hurts so good and that sort of feeling of reveling in subjugation i'm not making a call on that but that those are the those are the interpretations that have been made by different audiences and this is this becomes a theme in her career because she does walk yeah. uh, some problematic lines with some of her problematic her but relatable as well that's the thing that's probably yes. why yeah. she's so popular within certain subsets because it may be problematic to greater culture but it's very relatable to everyday life yeah but that, that that's actually that's a really really good avenue to lead us on to a discussion of the nature the profanity the coarseness of some some of the the content because ultimately millie jackson maintains that the reason that especially our early audiences were so heavily populated by women was because they came to see her because they wanted to hear her saying the things that they felt they couldn't say and she maintained that one of the quotes is men didn't want my records in their houses um you know she said that women would go home and try and implement and repeat the things that she'd said at her shows um you know she was very sex positive uh, she encouraged women to enjoy and use their sexuality i mean the track all the way lover uh, cover of latimore from ni- uh, Millie basically like, encourages women to demand more oral sex. I've seen, you know, the famous live performance where she's pointing, so he has to kiss you, but it's like below the belly button, but above the kneecap. <laughs> so not saying what she's saying, but she's saying what she's saying. Yeah. I think it's part yeah, <laughs> yeah. 
Party, exactly. Party was a key word. She talks about that a few times because she was forced to use that in terms of publicity and wider. Like she wasn't allowed to talk about women demanding oral sex. It was so taboo. And this is like time. front of stage, in front with a massive like big band behind her and sold out audience and a and a mad disco skirt split down the seams and all the rest of it. It's bold as brass. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It is important to maybe acknowledge that Billy Jackson is one of the first to say that there's a difference between being sexy and talking about it. Her image of herself, certainly in that interview uh, from from 84 and British TV, it, it seems very nuanced. Vicky, what did you make of in that interview when the woman asks her about her relationship to sex and her sexual confidence and does she want to be described by those uh, adjectives you know the woman lists a whole bunch of adjectives you know that was one of the most cringy bits of the interview for me because the interview was like sensational raunchy these are the adjectives that are used to describe you what do you think of them and she's like I am alright with that I'm fine with that and she's like what other adjectives would you like to be and then you're just like shut up and like just ask good questions and like we've said she handles it with total grace I think in that interview it's quite clear that there's quite a big difference between her stage personality and her normally day to day pragmatically whatever right although I think there's a big part of her in her stage personality I think the interviewer's approaching her as if she's incapable of just normal conversation (laughs) do you know what I mean I don't know Um, and, and, and she was mentioning things about her sexuality and that that made me think that in real life she can't really be bothered that much with sex because she's such a fucking workaholic she's Mm. do you know what I mean Mm. she's like on the road all the constantly doing stuff with her own career it just seems to me that um, these are aspects that she maybe amplifies on stage Mm. that maybe but that in her real life aren't as much as an immediate concern because like obviously she's a single mum as well she's get wanes the fact that she has the career she has is so that she can provide because she's mum and dad, because the, the, their dads were absent, so... Mm-hmm. I mean, there's some there's some funny musings on it on her part in terms of the reactions to her profanity. Uh, she she used the, the quote, uh, I've got 30-something albums, but only three songs to be played. And, I, Craig, you touched on it earlier, the kind of working class thing. She also was quoted saying these were the conversations women were having at the laundromat. And a lot of her audience came from that vicarious enjoyment of watching somebody saying these things. Yeah, she she said that both on the the kind of personal scale where Sunday morning uh, the husband would know he was was in trouble because the woman was listening to Millie Jackson records because he came in too late or he didn't come home at all or something like that. But she also, uh, (laughs) she's did it live where um, there's a a very famous one where uh, the Pointer Sisters are in the audience and she calls him out and sitting, you know, she's doing her doing her bit and saying, these girls, they talk just like me. They say all the things I say, but they're the point of sisters. And you won't buy my records if I don't do the cussing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, there was an authentic part of that where she was seeing it through to its conclusion. She was seeing it. She was being that the whole way. And so the Gladys Knight comparisons... Um, she was quoted in that as well because she obviously was flattered by that. She's a big Gladys Knight fan, as we've said. But she she said uh, Gladys started rapping on "Help Me Make It Through the Night," and I'm like, okay, now she's going to rap. Well, I guess I'll just cuss. She's too much of a lady to cuss, and that was her way to sort of distinguish herself. Yeah, I think a big a big part of I think her beef with like Tina Turner and possibly Gladys Knight was that the 
had to temper themselves for a mainstream audience or, or maybe they didn't, maybe they wanted that was them authentically, who knows, right? But like she, it wasn't relatable to her and uh, and her whole thing was about just about being real. Um, but what I would say about her as well is, so latterly, like there's, artic- when, when I started to look in the internet about this, there's articles like saying that Millie Jackson's like the godmother of WAP, you know, like Cardi B. WAP, WAP as yeah. WP. They also call the godmother of rap as well, rap in general, and then it, then rap gets to WAP, you know, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so WAP as in like the overt sexuality. You yeah, know? yeah, like the overt sexuality and I guess like the taking control, yeah, all of that kind of stuff. I can understand why that comparison has been made, right? But with Millie Jackson, that is like a big part of what she is, not because that's what she's going out to be, but because that's what she is, right? Like, not because, like, she's orchestrating that, but, but what comes with that as well is a vulnerability, right? But see, WAP, WAP doesn't have any vulnerability in it. It's, do you know what I mean? It's completely separate. It's complete, For me, it's completely different from Millie Jackson. For me, like, Millie Jackson's probably got, with the aggressiveness and the sexuality with the vulnerability mixed in is something a bit more like Amy Winehouse, no quite, but maybe a bit more like that than something like Cardi B and mm-hmm. WAP. Yeah, and that comes up in interviews as well where the overt sexuality is challenged a bit. It's like, are you are you compensating for something? But people are going to be fixated on that, right? Because yeah. that's something that stands out from everybody else, like because people are singing about sex metaphorically and all the rest of it, right? Because she's so explicit and crass about that, that's the thing that people will go to, but there is a lot more here than that. Mm. Absolutely mm. agreed. I didn't see her as like an explicit and crass kind of thing. I've seen more of the humour in it. It's taken a long time for it to get to that kind of WAP status. And that's 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 fairly empowered in a time when you're allowed to be more empowered or well, as depressing as that sounds. I, I don't want to go on a mad tagent. Ta- I don't want to go on a mad tangent. <laughs> a mad tadger. I, 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 I don't want to go on a mad tangent, but I'm not sure necessarily how empowered that is. I think there's nuance to WAP as an empowerment thing. We can get into that another time. Um, Millie Jackson taking it though, you're saying about humour. I totally agree with that because, I mean, a great way to illustrate that is the fact that with her albums alone, even the titles, the cover art, she loved to be provocative and a bit fucking stupid at can, times. Yeah, you can totally tell that it's like a lot of it's taken tongue in cheek, right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. She, for example, she not not too long after uh, they had caught up, she released an album called Feeling Bitchy and she got a huge kick out of the fact that people had to go into record stores in the day. There's actually she she does a kind of skit in the interview where she's kinda of impersonating somebody going into a record store and going, Can I have a copy of Feeling and they're like, feeling? What? And she's like, F- feeling? And they're like, oh, feeling bitchy. And then the, the, the clerk in the store goes, hey, Al, can you bring me up more copies of feeling bitchy for this woman? <laughs> and it's like, I mean, she really enjoyed that little bit of provocation. But then you've also got albums like that. Was it ESP Extra Sexual Persuasion? <laughs> Which is like her leaning forward holding a crystal ball that's deliberately positioned to make her cleavage enormous. And then you've got, uh, what's that album? Is it Back to the Shit? No, I've Back album, to the yeah. Shit. Oh, Back to the Shit. You go wake up out of a dance. Cause you gotta be. Oh, you gonna do that? Without failure. I don't give a shit what time you went to bed. You go get up and go be. But we gotta. Which is 
Millie Jackson sitting on a fucking toilet. Straining. <laughs> strain face. We are pants at her ankles, man. It is absolutely. My favourite part of that out. cover is uh, she's holding one shoe in her hand. <laughs> she's, <laughs> she's had to take one shoe off <laughs> to get a bit, of, get almost, a bit of an angle on it. <laughs> it's like Zappa or something. It is. Like it? It, is it is quite like Zappa. Yeah. You're right. There's a surrealist quality to it, yeah. And <laughs> and I mean, those albums frequently appear on like your worst ever covers lists but the fact is Millie Jackson knew what she was fucking doing she was totally in on that joke and mm-hmm. in, it, she played it, with it in other just, album covers as well when I mean, you look at those kind of classic 70s soul albums where it's a you know the beautiful woman and you know lounging on something with a big afro kind yeah. of thing and she's a very beautiful yeah. woman and then she'll just do something silly like licking her lips or something just to give a bit of innuendo (laughs) the cover he caught up I think is fascinating oh it's hilarious it's a spider's web but I know we'll come back to that but like our album artwork is amazing and it's it's, it's, it's amazing that she's uh, she's always up there with the worst album covers but then in, an, in another sense, it's kind of, I look at it like Anchorman or Will Ferrell or something. It's like, uh-huh. this is terrible, but it's, you know, but it's got a big audience for like, so bad it's good. I get the, Im- I get the impression yeah. Millie Jackson just couldn't give a fuck. Um, yeah, I, I told you, absolutely, absolutely. That I think if, if you watch any interview with her, especially a documentary, it's very clear that she doesn't give a fuck about anything. That's what makes her really endearing. But as not, a person, yeah, but not in know? a bad way, not in a like, a, I don't care what, yeah, how, how, uh-huh. what I say affects anyone or anything. It's in a really endearing and a really kind of, in a really grounded way. Yeah, I, I don't know, but. I wouldn't go quite as far as either of you guys there. I actually think that one of the most intriguing things about Millie Jackson is that she did sometimes seem to cross the line. And I think even she would agree <laughs> that she sometimes crossed the line. I think one example of that might be uh, in her live shows. She used to address, uh, quote, sadity bitches who were being too lazy or too uptight to, quote, take care of business at home, as in, like, mm-hmm. women not seen to their men's needs mm-hmm. and the narratives that, okay, in the context of the album we're going to cover, that's kind of role play, that's part of the the, the the assumed characters, but it does seem to crop up quite a lot throughout our, our career, a bit more decontextualised. Mm. Um, How would you feel if you were in the audience and she, like, came down started feeling all the men's crotches in the front row? Right, I mean, you're, like, like, five seats along and you're like, I'm next, oh my God, oh my God. Yeah, I mean, so there's <laughs> videos of her literally going into the audience and just cupping men's <laughs> junk. <laughs> And, and, you know, and it kind of, I mean, it's an interesting phenomenon because it puts the men in the position that I'm sure a lot of women have been put in of like, how do I react to this ridiculous moment? See, when you watch it though, right, there's, she stands in front of this guy and he does not flinch at all, but she looks him in the eye and you can see her kind of going, is it all right? Is this all right? Kind of thing, like, and she can see that he's just like, on you go. Like and she's just like that straight, in. and she's got big nails as well. You're just thinking that guy's there going, "I'm cool with this, I'm fine." And it's great, and it, yeah. goes, it goes back to that stand-up thing as well, where like you know the you know when you go to the uh, comedy club, you don't want to be sitting in the front row. You know you're going to get picked on. So it's uh 
Yeah, imagine going yeah. to a gig, especially a big gig like that with someone like Millie Jackson coming for you. <laughs> You're going to want to be in the back row. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's transgressive, right? It's, I don't know. It's Maybe about, some guys are into that. It's about transgressive. <laughs> some guys right? are definitely into that, man. There's, there's an entire fucking mobile phone apps just designed for guys that are into that. <laughs> it's um, been deliberately transgressive at a time when it wasn't. The thing is, right? yeah, I mean, it's so. all very well dressing that up as being transgressive, but it's also just fucking downright. If it's inappropriate for men to go up and stick their hand into between a woman's legs it's, it's inappropriate for a woman to do it to a man so I think regardless of the era I think we can all look in that with a certain level of scepticism in terms of its appropriateness just like she talks about like grabbing the members of her band in the ass and stuff and I'm sure we could all it wouldn't it be funny if Robert Palmer went about grabbing the members of his band by the ass or if Prince had done that to like she like she's hot <laughs> <laughs> but you know I, I'm, I'm not trying to I'm not pulling at a men's rights fucking angle here no, but I'm just saying please it, don't she, <laughs> <laughs> she definitely had that line crossing potential and it, it certainly wasn't isolated. it's also very difficult to like view that through a 2021 lens isn't it right there is a wee bit of her that's like if you can't beat them join them she was deliberately pushing the envelope I mean clearly there's, yeah there's mm-hmm. that there's that she's co- wrestling control out of, out of his other people's hands as well like, so, I mean it's also just about this this was the product she was selling I mean of course. It's a show. Yep, it's a show. Women loved it. I was speaking to them. I didn't sell records to bougies. It was the poor people who bought my music. The women who bought Diana Ross did not buy Millie Jackson. The people in the projects understood me. I was down and dirty. I told you like it was. She knew what became expected of her. She knew her strengths mm-hmm. as uh, an artist. She knew what people were kind of looking to see expressed through her. Also, she, she knew what people didn't have and wanted to give to them. I'm putting my marketing head on just now because that's what I do. But she's looking at it from a sense of like, well, shit, no one's getting this just now. So I'm going to go and try and do that. If you're sitting in the projects and you're thinking about well, what do these people want, then she's tried to do something to reach that audience. I mean, another quite notorious example of her potentially crossing some lines. Uh, I mean, I think it was a Song Facts interview in 2010 where she, she said... Um, I was thinking of what the next album was going to be and I had run out of things to talk about. So we're on tour bus and I'm going through Jet Magazine and I'm saying, okay, there's Arthur Ashe. He's with a white woman. There's the guy that plays Shaft on TV. He's with a white woman. Damn, there's OJ Simpson with a white woman. Somebody needs to say this. Why don't I say this? I have to say this. I want to speak to you about white girls on the arms of our black men. Is that bad enough they getting the good thing they got the men calling? That, even at the time, was quite, like, okay. And what what is the reason for that, well, in your opinion? Actually, well, Chris, you answer that. Oh, you, no, I mean, Mark, you can chime in there as well, like well, what anybody thinks. Yeah, Mark, be my guest. <laughs> well, on you go, on you go. Like, no, no, Mark, please. Is it because a lot of the theme around the album we're going to do is about scarcity of resources, like... Ownership, blah blah blah. This feeling of being under attack and stuff like that. There's a bit of that in there. You know, it's unavoidable that the four Caucasians that we are have to address the the kind of cultural and social context of it. And that was the civil rights movement exactly. and and black social dynamics. Certainly, Melly Jackson and her role as feminist icon is very disputed, not least by her. 
um, it's it's important to kind of look at the way that both the civil rights movement and the feminist movement impacted or rather didn't speak out for black women or like the way that they seem get a poorer deal in both in both areas there is an interesting ph- phenomenon that i know was written about in quite a, a, a lot of literature by black feminists talking about uh, the movements of the time um about the fact that black women had uh, a heightened concern for their sons and their men because of the crimes and the violence inflicted against them. Absolutely. There was, there was a really strong love for black men, but it's also commented on by a lot of black writers that uh, that love for black men often went so far as, what's the word, uh, maybe maybe allowing for personal failings that wouldn't otherwise have been permissible, making excuses for the personal failings of black men because of a need to support certainly the civil rights movement and men's rights and men's progress at the time. There was a kind of catch-22 situation there where women were trying to be supportive of men but ultimately were selling themselves short in in the long run. Maybe the point that I was making before was like, see that those like interpersonal relationships between men and women the sexism within them would become deprioritized to the constant racial threats in your like environment, right? So I think that one of the articles that I read about this was seeming to say that the home and family life was so important to black women because it was safe. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, like be, well, being yeah. out and about in a white dominated society was a constant threat. So other things become deprioritised in that situation where you're in this constant state of alert against a system of oppression that's constantly trying to murder you. Do you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. like, there's 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 a bit of that going on which explains why there's this resentment of black men going with white women or whatever. Like, I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just saying there's you can understand that from that point of view of. Protection and security, and you know what I mean. This kind of drawing a line around things. Well, well, there's 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 two dynamics. I think the first dynamic is that the, the civil rights movement. You know, a lot of it was driven by a sort of like Marxist anti-racist or black liberation narrative, and that actually quite often sort of emphasised still pretty traditional gender roles and stereotypes. You know, it was mm-hmm. kind of built on that. There was also a slightly higher level of religiosity mm-hmm. as well, and so there's a lot of like maintaining gender roles so that that there wasn't a lot there was a lot in it for black women clearly but there was maybe less in it for black women Mm -hmm. than there was for black men right and then meanwhile in the feminist movement you know if you think about the goals of the feminist movement the ones that we would really like sing and dance about they were kind of neoliberal advances you know it was women going into the workforce and employment and the thing is it tended to have the greatest amount of benefits for upper working and middle class women not for disproportionately poorer women which was also disproportionately affecting the black community was also disproportionately affecting black women so they were sort of getting the losing deal not not the losing deal they were making gains but they were making less gains from each of those movements proportionally and there's a neoliberal aspect to the fact that all those men she's talking about they were black men that were doing well 
So successful black men were suddenly okay for white women to go and date. And I think that was part of the observation that was being made there. But the way it was made was definitely really quite provocative and quite blunt. And that may well be the way that people were talking in the laundromat. That's interesting. But it it wasn't a way that was deemed necessarily acceptable by society at the time. It was just too much of a shock to the system and maybe a bit too clumsy in its analysis. I mean, it's, it's really interesting because... Her own musings on that are fascinating. She said that certainly she found that she suffered more being a woman in her career than she did from being black. She said that was a far bigger issue. She said that, you know, it's taken for granted that women, quote, had no idea what they were talking about. And, you know, if you have a career as a woman, you have two jobs. You know, you came home and you also Mm -hmm. had kids and household and teaching to impart upon those children and all kinds of other things to do that the male counterpart didn't necessarily oh, have yeah. in that um, Now that you're emancipated, you can be whatever you want. In fact, be all of it. <laughs> well, you know, that that's, that's not emancipation. That's the whole reason why she was often called the godmother of hip hop, right? But the, the album that she explicitly talks about it on is I Had to Say It. Um, and that was where she started talking about, well, she, she was seeing like O.J. Simpson, for example, having like the white girlfriend, white wife or whatever. She said in that unsung documentary that it's her react, it was her reaction to the Sugar Hill Gang. Hip hop, which was at that time, it wasn't really saying anything. Whereas she was like, Well, I had to say it, I had to go and say something about it. Like mm-hmm. you just said, it's about that comment on, you know, these empowered black men who, who like you just said, are in, in a part of that sort of neoliberal sort of sphere that are being, I don't want to say co opted, but you know what I mean? Like they're, they're being used in, in a way. They were also held you know? up as an example of progress yeah. that uh-huh. maybe wasn't yeah. net trickling down to the yeah. broader community, as as is still demonstrated by statistics on poverty, especially mm-hmm. in places like the United States. I think it's it's interesting as well that the feminist movement in America didn't necessarily meet with a, a great deal of support in the black community because there were other implications. Because I mean, Billy Jackson has spoken about this specifically. The civil rights movement led to black men getting meaningful employment in certain sectors. But there was conflict because just as, quote, black men were getting used to carrying an attache case, women came into the workforce and the companies fired the black men, hired women and and killed two birds with one stone. Mm-hmm. You know, they looked progressive and they got these black men out of their companies, which was kind of had, in a lot of cases, been done grudgingly in the first place. So the implication is that the feminist movement actually ended up at, at odds a bit with the civil rights movement and that maybe perhaps explains in some small way the greater emphasis that was still placed on the gender roles within the black community. But it also explains perhaps if Millie Jackson was speaking for the women in the laundromat, why she wasn't so keen to to, to go out and brand herself as a feminist. As of course. Because it didn't necessarily represent or it didn't necessarily seem like something that, that was inclusive of the women that she was primarily speaking to and, yeah. and speaking on behalf. So I heard the word, the word, I had to look this up by the way, um, the word real politic was used. Real politic. Real yeah. politic. And um, I guess like there's a bit of that with her, it's just a kind of pragmatism, like yeah. kind of just real, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I just keep coming back to that and I just keep thinking how helpful is it to deconstruct and analyse this from a feminist perspective of a feminism that didn't really include people that like her anyway, do you know what I mean? So, 
Yeah. It's also coming from an era when it, oh, the concept of intersectionality didn't really exist, right? No, not at all, exactly. So it's like you, you've got to pick your battle. I mean, what, what battleground are you going to fight on? You know, as opposed to where a segregationist sort of thing in America, right? And she talks about that in some of her songs, particularly in her earlier records. How much room in our head is there for being someone that actually speaks about an unsung documentary lamented the fact that Martin Luther King was was killed and she she knew she was able to say exactly where she was the day that he died or you know trying to be a feminist icon which probably didn't even enter her head at any point you know during this during that entire period because she's talking about the 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 working class ethic in the laundromat you know the the, the conversations that the people that she knows are having and the things that they want to talk about and things that they want to hear in the music. It's just, it, when I think about that, when she talks about that kind of shit, I can't help but think about, you know, all the fucking punk records that I like. They're talking about the things that, you know, that, that we exist and live on a mm-hmm. daily basis. Maybe it's a different political angle for us because we're white and, and working class, you know, but it's I think it's the same kind of... Same kind of milieu, you know. Mm-hmm. There, there is a, a really great quote by her. Um, I was never looking to become that crossover pop star. Let white folks come over to me. Um, yeah, totally. I mean, yeah, totally. Like, is, why, why, why would you bother? You know, mm-hmm. why would you bother? So, I mean, it's it's interesting that you mentioned segregation because there's a couple of specific incidents just where we're talking about the controversies that she was surrounded by at the time. Um, and it, I mean, it was a learning process. She was a human. And as Craig mentioned, she was largely self-managed her whole career. So she was really drawn on her own gut instincts for a lot of these things. One of them was in South Africa. She was criticised for performing in South Africa. Um, she later decided she would never do that again due to apartheid. But she said that her original performance was only really enabled by her ignorance of the realities of the situation there. And the more she learned when she came home after that initial performance, the more it made her mind up that she wouldn't repeat it. Um, and she'd refused to perform to a segregated audience. But then there was a further layer of controversy to that, which actually came at her from the other side, which came at her from the civil rights movement, whereby she was criticised by black civil rights act- activists, some of, I would suggest, the more radical wing of that, because she insisted on mixed audiences in South Africa, and, and their 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 angle was, if you sit blacks next to whites at a show, they forget there is a revolution going on, <laughs> mainly because life feels too normal. And she thought, I mean, she rejected that completely. She said, that, that's totally ridiculous. It demonstrated that they had never lived in that situation. Yeah, context. Exactly. They were speaking from ideology, not mm-hmm. from any sort of experience yeah. or mm. compassion or empathy. And she was, I mean, she was criticised at one point for performing in Kenya because the tickets were priced in such a way that, yes, there were black people in attendance, but they were the the most affluent black people in Kenya. Literally, mm-hmm. they were the only people that could afford to go to those shows. And she she kind of took that, that criticism mostly on the chin. Good. I think I think she accepted that a lot. It was pretty valid. And that, as I say, not having that management structure yeah, um, it's a big thing for her. It's a, mm-hmm. it, it, was, it was a big decision. I mean, I think the lack of management... We could probably touch on that. It probably limited her success to some extent. I mean, uh, she's got a quote, uh, I write a lot of songs and I publish them and I go to work when I feel like it. That's why I've never had a manager. I don't need anyone to tell me when to go to work. I know if I want to work or not. But at the same time... No one to steer you. There's no one steering. There's no one looking out for opportunities. And I think she has acknowledged and a lot of other people have attributed that 
uh, the fact that she never ended up with any really groundbreaking deals or toning down any of her material to that. I mean, there, there's a, a New York Times thing. Um, I mean, loads of papers at the time and since then have tried to find explanations for why somebody with that much talent and working with like muscle shows and all that never really reached the levels of like Gladys Knight, Aretha Franklin, Tina Turner, etc. Um, yes, the lyrical content is a big part of it. The New York Times had said uh, with just a bit more attention to hooks, she could have had consistent hits. That wouldn't constitute selling out. If she's worried about that, it would help convey the underlying seriousness of her art to a broader public. And, and music is not radio friendly, though, and I don't even just mean in the content. But like, their she point does the is long that, songs. Yeah, but their point is also that those kind of like creative decisions might have been sort of Humiliated. modified ah, by, right, by see what you mean. management. She she was her own boss, and as your own boss. It's great You get full creative control I don't want to be here Arguing against that But also mm, This but, is a woman mm. That seemed like She could have Sure But for her obviously The greater priority Was to be Her own to, self To be real Yeah mm-hmm. uh-huh. Yeah yeah. I mean there, there were Key moments I mean there's a couple of things That we've touched on Earlier on uh, 1979 She recorded a record With Isaac Hayes Called Is it Royal Rappins Yep Can I just say I literally found out this week that Isaac Hayes was not shaft. <laughs> no, but he was a chef at South Park. <laughs> no, I knew that, right? And I knew he did the theme for Shaft, but I thought he actually was uh, shaft, but he wasn't. So is, is that ra- is that racist? I, I don't know. Is that racist? No, I think it's just because he's so inextricably linked to Shaft that I thought he was Shaft. You know, some people do their own theme tune and their own you know their own character and their, with their own theme that's happened I'm shut up <laughs> <laughs> I do my own theme tune and I play myself <laughs> <laughs> that's also in your end well on that note before we go ahead and get ourselves completely cancelled we should just wrap this episode up right now and next week when we come back for part two of this we will talk about Millie Jackson's back catalogue some of the highlights and of course some of the most insane stuff that she's done so tune in for that 